Inside Outside Innovation is the podcast that brings you the best and the brightest in the world of startups and innovation. I'm your host, Brian Ardinger, founder of InsideOutside.io, a provider of research, events, and consulting services that help innovators and entrepreneurs build better products, launch new ideas, and compete in a world of change and disruption. Each week, we'll give you a front row seat to the latest thinking, tools, tactics, and trends in collaborative innovation. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of Inside Outside Innovation. I'm your host, Brian Ardinger, and as usual, we have another group of amazing, talented people to talk to today. Today, we have John Katzenbach and Gretchen Anderson. They are two of the co-authors of a brand new book called The Critical Few, Energize Your Company's Culture by Choosing What Really Matters. We are excited to jump into this discussion, primarily because, as a lot of people know who've listened to the show, culture is one of those difficult topics when you start talking about innovation. It seems to be at a root of a lot of things of how people can actually help navigate this world of disruption. Maybe to start the show off, give us your background on why culture is so important and how did you decide to write a book about it? Well, it's been kind of a lifelong search for me in one way or another. And Gretchen joined me in that search several years ago. So we've been around the topic quite a while. And I think one of the things we note is that the interest and urgency of the topic has increased dramatically in the last few years. That's kind of what brought us down to trying to articulate what both our experience and insights have suggested about culture, and eventually that's what led to the book. Gretchen, could you talk a little bit about the book itself? What's the core big idea around it? The big idea around the book is the notion that working within your company's organization, identifying and drawing on its greatest strengths is a much more effective and much more sustainable way to get your culture to work for you than it is to try to attack the problem by looking around to see what's wrong or broken in your culture or by imposing sort of an outside-in view of this is what perfect cultures look like and here's how we can get our culture there. So it's really sort of an intrinsic kind of pay attention to what's working, build from there kind of approach to how cultures work. When I like the book for a couple different reasons, one, I want to talk a little bit about the style of the book. So too many of business books out there are dry and boring, and it seems like you took a different tactic when writing this book. Folks that have not seen it might not understand, but you've kind of written it in a nonfiction style. So it tells the story of uh, fictional CEO Alex and walks them through that. Talk a little bit about why you decide to write the book in that particular style and what are the benefits that a reader will get from understanding the core topics based on that? Yeah, thanks for asking, Brian. It was a part of writing the book that came to us like a a real aha. And the idea was that we want to be able to tell clients and tell organizations and tell leaders, this is what it looks like to work on your culture. You know, it's all well and good to talk theory, but people really want to know what does it feel like to work within your culture and to listen to people And for years, we dreamed, oh, we'll work with some organization, and then they'll let us tell it all. And that we'll be so proud of what we did that they'll want us to write kind of an expose, and we'll be able to interview their people. A couple of years into the project, this idea of creating a fictional narrative that was kind of a composite of every situation we'd seen, it allowed us to pull through and really point out how universal the problems of culture are, even when they're really specific to a particular circumstance. And I think it gives a little bit different perspective because people can then read into it. They're not saying, well, that's not my company. It gives them a little bit different foray into the topic itself. 
So you talk about how to simplify this particular approach. Most people attack culture from this big complex systems of structures and such. And you kind of said the way to approach this is really to narrow it down to a four critical core components. So talk a little bit about those key traits or those critical few elements that make up a person's ability to attack culture. Well, I guess the first part of that has to be a realization that no two cultures are either similar or parallel. Cultures are very much singularly attached to the organization that is dealing with it. So I think what we wanted to be able to do is illustrate different kinds of things that people can run into, but we needed to do it within the construct of not assuming or even more importantly of not relying on the notion that somehow all cultures are in one way or another similar and therefore there are some fundamentals about the cultural situation. Whereas my belief now is that each cultural situation is its own unique combination of both how the people in the organization behave and secondly, how they feel about the behavior that matters to the organization itself and the customers they serve. So can you give me some examples of how that kind of manifests itself? When we talk about the elements, we talk about finding the critical few traits that are core and elemental to how your organization runs. Then from those traits, you can build to finding a critical few behaviors that if more people did them more of the time could help your culture evolve in a particular direction. And then the people who will help you get support along the way are the critical few people who have their thumb on the pulse of the energy in that organization and how that organization runs. And then you try to find a critical few terms of measurement. So you try to find areas where doing these things differently can be measured in how it relates to your business. So the overall philosophy is really about how do you take a comprehensive look at the whole ecosystem of your culture, commit to kind of working within it, and then narrow down, and then narrow down, and then kind of narrow down again. So it's very much about looking inward and then pulling something out. And a quick example, we have a healthcare organization we're working with currently, and they really decided that their critical behavior in this complex, many, many stakeholders, complicated market organization, the behavior that they understood to be the one that would help all parts of the business work together more smoothly was really around collaboration. And narrowing in on that specific behavior allowed them to say, you know what, we hear you, what you're saying. There are people in this organization who are already collaborating really well. Let's find them at all levels of the organization. Let's pull them out. Let's interview them and ask them, what is it that you do differently in this world and organization in which some of the structures are set up such that collaboration is hard? How do you do it? You know, got really specific and practical examples from them and had them develop ideas for what are some programs we can develop? What are some informal ways of infusing that notion, that behavior of collaboration all across the organization? And they're getting a lot of energy from that. You know, they're coming up with programmatic ways as well as more informal ways that they're looking to say collaboration is not just something we're sort of putting into a memo and turning into a key phrase. Let's think about what collaboration would really mean to all elements of our business. 
And then from that, then they're putting together the programs around that to implement that? Or is it more a communication of here's what's working and, and here's the behaviors that are working and, and here's the metrics of how we're measuring it? Or how does it actually manifest itself once you kind of understand that? How do you actually take action on that? It's an ongoing journey. So by doubling down on that behavior, it allows you to see where is the business getting in the way? You know, how are we not structured to allow for the collaboration that we all know that we need? And then there might be some sort of programmatic fixes that come out of that notion. But a lot of it is more informal, you know, kind of developing recognition programs for types of collaboration. And really, the most important thing is none of it is outsiders saying, we've seen how collaboration works in other organizations. Why don't you try this? The ideas are coming up from the people who are doing the work themselves. When we say critical few, we're thinking of what are the critical few traits that might be harboring emotional energy sources that the client could tap into in a way that would energize the critical behaviors. The interesting thing about critical behaviors is in any large company, there are a lot of behaviors. And this is not a no-brainer. Uh, you can't just jump in and say, well, the critical behaviors are teaming and performance accountability. That sounds good, but it doesn't really capture the essence of the cultural situation that is at hand. We start with a few behaviors that are clear in different ways. So the behavior would manifest itself differently depending on where you were in the organization, mm -hmm. but it would be cohesive with how that behavior manifests itself elsewhere. Best example of that is simply teaming. Teaming is often a requirement that clients think if we could be better at teaming, we would be much more collaborative over across the way. Well, the teaming behavior will manifest itself differently if you're looking at a group at the top of the organization or if you're looking at the group at the middle of the organization or if you're thinking about frontline. So, yes, teaming matters at all of those levels because collaboration is important at all of those levels. But if you don't recognize the different way it manifests itself, both in terms of where in the hierarchy of the organization it is, but also where in the geographic footprint of the organization it is. So you have to narrow down and also hang on to the integrating element of the behavior, i.e. teaming, mm -hmm. or is, as Gretchen describes it, collaboration. Okay, that's a very good starting point. But you have to get beyond that if you're going to affect behaviors in different parts of the organization. But that is a much easier path than simply trying to promulgate collaboration broadly. We try to come at that in a much more targeted way before you drive down to seeing where programs might apply and otherwise. Mm -hmm. So, yes, we want to narrow down on a few behaviors, but we know they're going to manifest themselves differently in different parts of the organization. We also want to capitalize on some of our traits, but what we want to be able to do also is follow those traits to specific emotions 
that will enable the client to have people feel good about what you want them to do differently. And so there are a few feelings here and a few behaviors here. And then last but not least, we are quite dependent on individuals in an organization who have a natural affinity and insight about how people feel. And as obvious as that sounds, it's not so easy to get to if you aren't dealing with the individuals already in the organization who I guess Daniel Goldman would call emotional sensors. We would probably call them informal authentic leaders. That's a very real input that enables us to connect better emotionally in the behavioral category as well. So that's where our critical few comes from. That's an interesting point. So a lot of the organization to actually be able to make a cultural shift or change has to start from the top to a certain extent, the CEO, and that have to be bought into this. But how do people other than the core central executive suite play into being able to actually make this happen? Is it something that can be driven from the bottom up or does it have to start from a top-down approach to make this cultural change work? Well, I think it has to start in both places. At least that would be my preference. Yes, it's important that the top management wants to do something with regard to their cultural situations, and it's important that they message and signal in a cohesive way. But I would like to have information from down in the organization at the same time. So I would like to know from that baseline of the organization in terms of the kinds of strategic and operating changes that are important at the top, I would like to be able to have a double handful of people down in the organization who are going to know more about the feelings that matter in that organization than I do, certainly, and probably than the people at the top do. Absolutely. So, Gretchen, can you talk a little bit about one of the things about our audience is they're, they're constantly looking at this concept of innovation. They want to be more innovative. They want to think and act and move more like startups, and they, they want to be able to adapt and compete in this new world that they're seeing. Are you seeing particular cultural traits or behaviors that seem to be working more effectively for companies that want to be more innovative? Oh, I love that question, Brian. We are, and we also, every time we get that question about innovation, we turn that back around, you know, kind of per the central argument of the book. We turn that around and say, what would innovation look like given who you are? You know what I mean? Like that innovation needs to be a way of behaving that's true to how your organization already likes to behave. Because mm-hmm. it's really easy to look at sexy organizations that everybody likes to talk about and say, well, look what they do. You know, they've got this much discretionary time for big ideas or they've got free snacks. You know, and it's really easy to think you can just lift those, implant them into your organization and get those same results. And over and over, we see that tried and we see that be tissue rejected, right? Your innovation needs to be as unique as your thumbprint. That's my first kind of caveat. But then at the same time, we've been tracking over time. We've been doing this kind of work now for decades. And for the past seven or eight years, we've been really tracking in a detailed way. What are the core traits of organizations we work with? And what are their aspirations? And of those core traits, 
what are we seeing that maps to an organization's ability to successfully innovate, an organization's ability to get their people to go more digital. One of our really interesting insights is that we are seeing a relationship between organizations that tend to have broader sense of metrics than just financial ones and their ability to innovate, and in organizations that tend to behave in a less hierarchical way and their ability to innovate. But again, these are kind of broad strokes things. We do a global survey at the Katzenbach Center of 2,000 people responded to it last year. And in that survey, we were able to ask all of those respondents questions about how their organization tended to behave, and then questions about what their aspirations were. So we were able to kind of pull from that data that kind of reinforced some of these insights that we were starting to feel over time. And again, to point out less hierarchical ways of being structured tend to lead to more innovation. That does sound a little bit like one would guess that culture is so intimate. We feel like we're in a very privileged position that we've been doing this for so long and that we've been kind of tracking this longitudinal data that we can start to say things like, you know, maybe it's time to look at how you're structured. Maybe it's time to look at your reporting metrics. You know, we are seeing trends that suggest innovation is going to be easier if you tackle these kind of inside things, again, rather than trying to implant somebody else's bright and shiny solution. Absolutely. And then in your trend data, then, are you seeing changes in how companies are approaching innovation from a cultural perspective differently? That's a great question. We are definitely seeing in our data collection, we're seeing an increased sense that increasingly leaders are reporting that they understand that the world outside is shifting very quickly and that they recognize that culture needs to be approached at the same level as strategy and operating model in order to compete in the market. That kind of awareness, we're seeing an increase in that. In relationship to innovation, I would say we're probably seeing that more anecdotally, but absolutely that sense that like innovation needs to be a solution that is as intrinsic to the organization as its culture is something we believe very fundamentally and, and we're looking for. I definitely feel like our next research push is going to be around finding ways to track that more explicitly. Gretchen and John, I do appreciate you taking the time to be on Inside Outside Innovation. If people want to find out more about yourself or the book, what's the best way to do that? So there's a website, the-critical-few.com. And John Katzenbach and I are also both on Twitter. And you can also find us both on LinkedIn. And some of our insights from research and articles we love, we're sort of keeping in touch with people there. That's it for another episode of Inside Outside Innovation. If you want to learn more about our team, our content, our services, check out insideoutside.io or follow us on Twitter at the IO Podcast or at Artinger. Until next time, go out and innovate.